there, good day everyone, and welcome to another episode of Left After Breakfast, broadcast from 3CR, your only radio left. Susanna here with you, and I'll be joined by other members of my Left After Breakfast team as the program continues. Your favourites for a start. So, welcome to regular listeners and indeed to anyone who has just tuned in. Good on you. 3CR Well, a few things today. I want to talk about balloons and things up there in the sky. But before I do that, I'm thrilled to bring you the BL from the bush and updates on the robo-debt, that bloody robo-debt. It's an ongoing saga, and I do wish that mainstream media would cover some more of it instead of talking about bloody boats. Morning, comrade. Morning, listener. BL from the bush calling in. Hoping you are all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. I'm still on about the uh, robo-debt. See you struggling, Ed. Kick it, Robodet Royal Commission. Just want to give you a little update and have a quick talk to you about that. I see you struggling, Ed, and kick it, Robodet Royal Commission. It concluded last week. You know, if it was a book, uh, it would be a Stephen King bestseller. Full of horror stories, deceit, lies, suicide, denial, blaming laziness and incompetence on everyone else but themselves. The politicians and senior public servants' catch cry for this Royal Commission seems to be one of the same, the same old story, and that was, I did not know, I was not told, I was entitled to rely on public servants. And uh, that listener was on a repeated loop throughout the uh, throughout the Commission hearings. So we just look at a couple of other phrases that sort of got kicked around the place. A strong welfare cop on the beat. We will find you. We will track you down. You will have to repay those debts. You may end up in prison. And I was doing it for solidarity of the cabinet. What a laugh that was. This was uh, some of the defence that was was offered by these taxpayer-funded employees for their incompetence, lying, negligence and out of lack of sympathy for those struggling to understand the illegal system they help implement and now defend. There was one public servant, Serena Wilson, who tipped the can on this cruel government. She put her hand up, uh, listener, and uh, admitted that it was wrong and she failed in her duty. But she also also had a bit to say, listener, and uh, I'll just give you a bit, of, a bit of what she said. They had a strong view of deserving and undeserving poor. From the 2014 budget through to the 2018 budget, the vast majority of my work involved identifying savings options to cut social security expenditure. I have built a career trying to improve lifetime well-being and address the needs of disadvantaged people. But, in my opinion, 
there was little empathy for or understanding of those needs within the coalition government and ministerial staff. Good on you. In some respects, it appeared that social security payments for working aged people were seen by the government principally as a lever for behavioural change. Miss Wilson states. And then she goes on and then she tips a can on the, the coalition's hit list. And this is something else that, you know, they, they've been playing around with this for, for, for quite a while. It, it was first mooted in the 2014 budget and that was the budget under Abbott and that was the that was when probably the most woeful and indignant picture of all time was taken and that was with the cigar smoking Matisse Corman and Joe Hockey after they put down that dirty budget. And so I'll just go on with some of these uh, proposals that were still out there and about for um, for this robo-debt and, and for these people to implement. Applying the six-month waiting period for job seekers under 30 and only paying six months income support in any 12-month period as an incentive for full-time study or obtaining employment. Taking unpaid state fines out of income support payments. Compulsory deducting rents. Mandating school attendance for children in respect of whom family tax benefits was received. Denying income support to people who had outstanding warrants. Requiring parents receiving income support to undertake compulsory parenting or child-focused activities. Reducing childcare assistance and family tax benefits to parents whose children did not have up-to-date immunisations. Trailing drug testing of new claimants for income support and requiring those who tested positive to undertake rehabilitation and treatment. Restricting overseas travels for people on income support, including for aged pensioners. Mandating the post-secondary courses that students could pursue. You know, not, that's just some of the lengths that this cruel, vindictive government was prepared to go to. But this was all ready to be implemented. This was all ready to be carried out. So, you know, just never forget, never ever forget what these mongrels, what these mongrels can do to you. And yeah, it's all it's all targeted to one one particular people. That's the most vulnerable. I've been watching this some of the evidence and everything given and some of the victim statements. And I've got to tell you, uh, listener, they're, they're pretty harrowing. The victims of the scheme spoke, scope up for what should matter, what a social security needs to protect and deliver. You know, Sandra Bevan is a single mother, she's four boys, who works in disability support, told us about the experience of correctly reporting income and not being listened to. It was so traumatic that she, she swore she would never access Centrelink benefits ever again. Bevan is a powerful reminder of where courage, strength and leadership are found in our society. So, listen, look, I really would, I would encourage you to look, look at her testimony. You can get it on the website, on the government website there, um, and just type in her name. It'll come up. I've got to tell you, uh, listener, that it's it's chilling and it's very confronting what, what she has to say and how she said it and what she was going through at the time. 
Yeah, just just that's absolutely gobsmacking. Now, in in the final block of the commission, there's another victim, Matthew Thompson. Uh, he sort of summed up what he felt drove Robo dead, and this is what he had to say. It seems to me that the powerful people are always able to take advantage of the vulnerable people. As the gap between rich and poor increases still, and no matter how many royal commissions we have, that always seems to be the case. And I hope this royal commission can change that. Now, that was just what his thoughts on it was. Now, Commissioner Holmes, now she's a real, she's a, she went out of the box this year. She was the um, Queensland Chief Justice. The thing with her is that, you know, being that job in Queensland, you know, that knows a little bit about corruption and, and, and stuff going on up there. And to watch her during this uh, commission and for her to be so taken aback and the expressions on her face that she was just, she, she herself was horrified and she's seen some pretty hard things, you know, in her previous jobs. And for her to be to, to be affected that way, you know, it, it, it just goes beyond belief. But anyway, Commissioner Holmes, she could only give us uh, like a simple human response. Somehow, all at once, it spoke to her commitment, the limits on her role, the history of Royal Commissions and the reality of the system as it currently is. And she said, I'm afraid I can't promise you that, but we'll do what we can. Uh, she's, uh, she's, very, she's been very good all the way through it. If there's anything we've learned from this see out struggling Ed kick at RoboDebt Royal Commission, it is that you should never be forgotten what lengths politicians and senior public servants will go to implement an illegal scheme for self-preservation and political gain and take no responsibility for the wake and misery and destruction that's left behind them. And that's quite evident all the way through it, uh, is that it was this don't care attitude. Some said, oh, yes, we knew that it may have been wrong or the dismissal of legal evidence and it was forgotten about, it was ignored, and, oh, yeah, well, we thought it was bad, but, you know, we just carried on. They, they did it with guts, so they, they believed in what they were doing as far as I'm concerned. And, and listen, this should never, ever be forgotten. The next federal election, it should be on every billboard in the country. Don't forget robo-debt. Or more of the fact, listener, don't ever forget what this mob are capable of doing, doing to the most vulnerable people in our society, the, the, the easy mark. And what did it cost? What's it cost the taxpayer? The taxpayer still hasn't been, still hasn't finished paying for this yet. Well, as I said, said early doors, it was about, yeah, you know, we're starting price on this whole, whole fiasco is $2 billion and it's still going. That's probably about it for me, uh, listener, but I do I do sort of encourage you to have a look at some of those witnesses, witness statements, and just and just sort of see for yourself uh, what this what this illegal scheme has left in its wake. Uh, I'll go out the same old way. Dare to struggle, dare to win. If you don't fight, you lose. Good morning from Left After Breakfast, the only show left. Well, thanks again for your input, BL from the bush. I must also say, listener, that I got a very quick and urgent phone call from the BL 
after he had sent me that little recording for today's program to say that there was more of it but he sort of lost it somehow in the process of getting it to me. We're still working out how all this newfangled technology works but he did want to actually say that there was more to RoboDebt than just the money that we as taxpayers have coughed up and are still coughing up that there is the human cost involved, the dreadful human cost. And don't forget our people's lives, the lives of the most vulnerable in our society. What does it say about us as a society that we treat our most vulnerable in this manner? And we mustn't forget that Scott Morrison failed Prime Minister, is the grandfather of robo-debt. This robo-debt scheme is fast becoming known as one of the worst policy failures in Australian history. It saw hundreds of thousands of Australians illegally chased down for debts that they did not owe. And as the Royal Commission into the scheme heard over the past nine weeks, resulted in devastating consequences for many of those affected. Scott was a social services minister when the program was introduced in 2015, but he prefers now to think of himself as the Prime Minister who put a stop to it, which is, well, you could only say a creative way to frame his involvement. Very creative. But on reflection now, in 2023... Morrison didn't go so far as to call the program immoral, despite it being found to be illegal. When asked about the morality of the scheme, he preferred to comment on the regrettable nature of it. It's totally regrettable, and it's a very sad thing that's occurred, he said. I only wish that at that time we were advised that it was unlawful. Funny that we'd seen from the Royal Commission... They were advised many a time it was unlawful. Well, we don't forget you, Scott, and your robo-debt. The same as I really don't forget what you said two years ago at the March for Justice protests when you gave us that unforgettable line in Parliament that women are lucky not to be met with bullets. Three And because we've heard from the BL from the bush, I have to play a song for him. I know there are a number of listeners who have asked for this song to be repeated. A good union song. Possibly the best one that I've ever heard. It suits the BL from the bush right down to the ground. As it suits the oh-so-elusive bagman. And you will be hearing from the bagman soon, listener. As soon as he's back for Mayor Tiroa, then we'll have him back on this program. So hurry home, bagman. Get back to Australia. Come on, we're waiting for you.
my pride and bust my face Scatter my rights all over the place And take the bread from off my plate But you can't break me Lock me out, chain the gates Put black shirts in with dogs and mace I'll hold the line, won't step away Cause you can't break me I belong, you belong, we belong to the union Don't count me out when I'm on the floor We'll win again, we've won before The streets will ring with a mighty roar Cause you can't break me Stocks rise up on workers' backs Profits soar while you hand out the sack Boardroom bullies bloated and fat But you can't break me Australia's sold to mates offshore Backroom deals and shonky law This day has come, we say no more You can't break me I belong, you belong, we belong to the union I belong, you belong, we belong to the union I'll never lay down and die I'm in the union, mate, got a right to belong We'll be back, million strong Women and men united as one Cause you can't break me There's a warning here to the men in grey The piper's come, it's time to pay We're taking back what you stole away Cause you can't break me I belong, you belong, we belong to Balloons. I wanted to talk to you about balloons. Balloons, they just appeared and they appeared again and then they appeared some more. Just balloons. But suddenly they became sinister by their sudden abundance and the mystery of where they came from. They turned up all over USA and the first sighting wasn't announced by the Pentagon or by the White House, but by confused citizens on social media. And hundreds of these perplexed citizens posted footage. The comments about these balloons were, well, as you can imagine, theories about American decline, about the coming again, the rebirth of Donald Trump, the brazenness of China, and of course, the endless curiosity of aliens, but also the malevolence of the deep state, and Hillary Clinton, presumably to distract from the latest campaign of pedophilic blood harvesting in pizza parlours. The first balloon was sighted on January the 28th. It went all the way across the United States and the 
vast Midwest and its cornfields, its nuclear missile silos, before meeting its end a week later off the coast of South Carolina at the hands of a jet launcher missile. Long before Trump's assertions of election theft and the medical effects of ingesting bleach, Orson Welles found fame by transforming the H.G. Wells novel, The War of the Worlds, into a fake news broadcast. Now, this was on October the 30th, 1938, when his acting troupe interrupted the CBS regular programming to broadcast its adaptation of Wells' alien invasion. And they broadcast them as, you know, journalistic dispatches of the news. There were subsequent reports of mass hysteria and voluntary evacuations as terrified New Yorkers fled for the hills, but the scale of the panic itself was exaggerated. A confection about a confection, a lie about a lie. But when it came to the balloons, there was no mass panic. But some very strange things came out of the White House Certain members of Congress encouraged citizens to take arms and blow these damn balloons out of the sky, while Kari Lake, Trump's failed candidate for the Arizona governorship, posted a picture of herself crouched in a field, surveying the skies with an assault rifle, a profile of heroic preparedness. I'm told there's a balloon that needs to be taken care of, she tweeted. The North American Aerospace Defense Command, that's NORAD, actually scrambled its jets and shot the balloon from the North American sky. That's the first time it had ever done that. That didn't happen on September the 11th, 2001. And it didn't happen 17 years later when a disturbed airport baggage handler with no flight experience stole a Bombardier Q400 and performed an erratic joy ride around the mountains of Washington for 73 minutes before apologising to ground control for the trouble he'd caused and ploughing his plane into an island. After the recovery of this balloon and its analysis in the FBI lab, the US government said it was a spycraft and so there began, oh, predictably enough, another chapter in the alarmingly bellicose theatre of China-US relations. China insisted the balloon was meteorological and it had veered from its prescribed course. The Chinese government accused the US of hysteria and said that USA had seriously violated international norms and set a pernicious precedent by destroying the balloon. Things got a bit weirder after that. On the 10th of February, America's top guns were scrambled again, and they shot from the skies of Alaska an unidentified high-altitude object. Another balloon, which, until its demise, was heading towards the North Pole. A spokesman for the United States National Security Council said, we're calling this an object because that's the best description we have right now. It doesn't have manoeuvrable capability. It was virtually at the whim of the wind. We don't know who owned it, whether it's state owned or corporate owned or privately owned. 
the next day over Canada's wild and mountainous Yukon, which borders Alaska. Another unidentified flying object was shot from the sky by the US military. This time it was the Canadian leader's task to authorise the shooting. Justin Trudeau tweeted, I ordered the takedown of an unidentified object that violated Canadian airspace. Canadian forces will now recover and analyse the wreckage of the object. Thank you, NORAD, for keeping the watch over North America. A few hours later, a radar anomaly triggered the closure of Montana's airspace. Was this another balloon? Or an object that no one knows? Another flying saucer? You never can tell in that part of the world. On February the 12th, for the third time in three days, another UFO was blasted from the skies by the US Air Force. This time the object was taken down above Lake Huron. There's so much mystery about it that the military couldn't even say if their targets were balloons. The NORAD commander said, I'm not going to categorise them as balloons. We're calling them objects for a reason. It's curious, isn't it? Be nice to have an explanation. Was the White House refusing to explain things or just incapable because of its own profound bafflement? And it looks like it was the latter, bafflement. And a superpower with 18 separate intelligence agencies, ones that can read vehicle license plates in Yemen from space, was bewildered by the serial encroachments of its homeland. Days and days passed without any meaningful official comment about these objects in the skies. However, and not for the first time, the White House press secretary in her daily briefing assured Americans there is no, I repeat, no indication of aliens or extraterrestrial activity with these recent takedowns of objects from the skies. Do you feel better about that? Though I think it's fairly <laughs> extraordinary if some advanced alien species had travelled here over thousands of light years in literally unthinkable technology and then commenced their surveillance of us with little tiny blips that look just like little weather balloons. I mean, that'd be really something, wouldn't it? By February the 14th, this baffling phenomenon had spread to Europe. Romania scrambled jets after spotting something mysterious on radar, although their pilots found nothing. Moldova, I'm not sure where Moldova is, dear listeners, somewhere in Eastern Europe anyway, I must Google. Anyway, Moldova temporarily shut its airspace after sighting a balloon near its northern border with Ukraine. My God, what is happening here? Now, back in Canberra, ACO Chief Mike Burgess appeared before the Senate estimates and he was asked about balloons. Any evidence of surveillance craft in Australia's skies? Anything Chinese, mate? There was not, Burgess said, and it wasn't the sort of surveillance that concerned him. So you can rest assured, dear listener, and I will be assured also, 
that we're not about to be invaded by aliens from outer space travelling around the world in little balloons. No, we're okay. So don't worry about it. Don't bother searching the skies for something, you know, that might be a spy craft or a UFO. If you see something like that, just call out, will you kindly F off? And it will. Would you like to ride in my beautiful balloon? Would you like to ride in my beautiful balloon? We could float among the stars together, you and I. For we can listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet www.3cr.org.au I'd like to talk some more about things in the sky. Yes, things in the sky. Reports of weird and wondrous and worrying objects in the sky date back to ancient times. When we get into the 17th century, Marvels like comets and meteors were viewed through the prism of religion. They were seen as portents from the gods and interpreted as holy communications. But by the 19th century, however, these celestial wonders had lost most of their miraculous aura. 
Instead, the age of industrialization transferred its ore onto products of human ingenuity. The steamboat, the locomotive, photography, telegraphy, and the ocean liner. They were all hailed as modern wonders by news outlets and advertisers. All of these instilled a widespread sense of progress and opened the door to speculation about whether objects in the sky signalled more changes. Nothing fueled the imagination more than the possibility of human flight. The wave of mysterious airship sightings that began in 1896 did not trigger widespread fear. The accepted explanation for these aircraft was terrestrial and quaint. Some ingenious eccentric had built a device and was testing it. But during the first two decades of the 20th century, things changed. European powers expanded their militaries and nationalist movements sparked unrest. So the likelihood of war prompted anxiety about invasion. The world saw Germany, home of the newly developed Zeppelin, as the likeliest aggressor. Military strategists, politicians and general people writing in newspapers warned of imminent attack by Zeppelins. So there was a series of phantom Zeppelin sightings by panicked citizens, not just in the United Kingdom, but in Australia and New Zealand in 1909, then again in 1912, and 1913. In the age of aviation, war and fear of war have constantly fueled reports of unidentified flying objects. A year after Nazi Germany's surrender, Sweden was beset by more than a thousand accounts of peculiar, fast-moving objects in the sky. Residents described rocket-like objects in flight they were dubbed ghost rockets because of their fleeting nature. This could be well within the range of possibility. In 1943 and 1944, a number of V1 and V2 rockets launched from Germany had crashed in Sweden. At first, intelligence officials in Scandinavia, Britain and the United States took the threat of ghost rockets seriously, suspecting that the Soviets might be experimenting with German rockets they'd captured. By the end of 1946, however, they had concluded it was a case of post-war mass hysteria. But what happened in 1947? Now, this is where the story really starts. <laughs> 1947. A pilot by the name of Kenneth Arnold was flying his small plane near Mount Rainier in Washington State, USA. As it was flying around, he said he saw some sort of glimmer or shine that caught his eye, and he was concerned that he was possibly going to have a collision with another aircraft. When he looked, he saw what he described as nine very odd-shaped vessels flying in formation. After Arnold landed, he reported his sightings to authorities at a nearby airport and eventually he talked to some reporters. When one of these reporters asked Arnold to describe how the things moved, he said, They flew like a saucer would if you skipped it across water. 
Now, a very enterprising journalist came up with the headline, Flying Saucers. And from that point onward, they were flying saucers. And that phrase is still with us to this day. Within days, other people in the country began reporting having seen similar things in the sky. Within weeks, the US Air Force was looking into the reports. Arnold's story triggered a lot of press interest, and soon the international media were covering his story. It was a worldwide phenomenon within months. So you can blame this pilot, Kenneth Arnold, in 1947 for this hysteria about flying saucers. You can blame him also for songs like this one I'm about to play you, which could have been a good trucking song. Nothing wrong with a good trucking song until a touch of UFO mania got in there. I was pushing my rig out across the desert one morning about three and there was nobody else out on the road. Nobody except for me. When I saw what looked like a flying saucer sitting by the side of the road so I hit the air and I stopped it right there and I darn near lost my load. Well, I crawled down my rig and I walked on over to this funny looking flying machine. It had some weird designs and some funny looking signs like I ain't never seen. Then I heard this tapping inside so I opened up the door just to see what I could see. And to my surprise right before my eyes was a little man looking at me and he said, misjudged directions and he kind of got off the track he said could you help me get my engine started i said i'll do what i can do well i gave him a jump and he said thank you truck driver and he flew off into the blue now i ain't telling anyone what i saw that night from the cab of my truck cause they'd never believe me anyhow and they might try to lock me up so i'll keep it to myself but i'll keep a close watch when i'm on the desert again Cause maybe someday he'll come back this way and I'll hear him singing again. something was Red Simpson, the flying saucer man and the truck driver. 
as I said, it could have been a good trucking song. Could have been. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Flying saucers really came into their own in the early 1950s and somewhat in the early 1960s. They were a product of Cold War paranoia, not visitors from outer space. It should be seen as a social phenomenon. The whole UFO craze began at the start of the Cold War when the new threat of atomic war with the Soviet Union hung over the world. I suppose it was simple for people to believe in something up there in the sky that could come and rescue us. And many early UFO sightings were confirmed by Britain's fledgling radar system. And often fighter planes were scrambled into the sky to investigate sightings. But as the new technology improved, the number of incidents appearing on radar quickly dwindled to zero. Now that's not a coincidence. The early confirmations were just a product of a primitive radar system. But we also now know, listener, that the American Secret Service, possibly with the connivance of the British Secret Service, looked at ways of using the public panic over UFOs as a psychological weapon against the Russians. In Britain, of course, the belief in alien visitation reached up to the highest positions in government. Winston Churchill was a believer, but, you know, he could have believed anything. Was the man ever sober? Lord Mountbatten, he was also a firm believer in flying saucers. Enough said about Lord Mountbatten. Let's just leave it there. So much for your flying saucers. And let's see if any more comes out about these bloody flying balloons or objects which may or may not be balloons. But I have to play another one of those songs. This is from 1958, Sheb Woolley. I remember this song really well and I still know all of the lyrics, all of them. Sheb Woolley, apart from being a writer and singer of novelty songs, also played the brother of Frank Miller in High Noon and he played a scout in Warhide. Well, I saw the thing coming out of the sky It had one long horn and one big eye Like a mister shaking in the city It looks like a purple people eater to me It was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater One-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater A one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater Sure looks strange to me After those couple of crazed songs, and I do apologise if your ears are hurting from that cutesy-wootsy sort of speeded-up voices to make them sound like they're little green men or some sort of alien from outer space who have nothing better to do with their time than to come down and make people write what is referred to as novelty songs. I'll have to make up for that listener by playing you a really good song here. 
and I reckon this is the beauty. Which side are you on? Shovels and knives. episode of Left After Breakfast was broadcast on the 17th of March, St. Patrick's Day of course. And even if you are not hearing it on St. Patrick's Day, I had to say something about the man, St. Patrick. It's really about the power of propaganda 
I mean, seriously, Patrick must be the best known of all the patron saints, with parades, parties and crack in his name being celebrated across the globe. St Patrick's Day is a happy occasion, a day of revelry with people who are totally unconnected to Ireland enjoying themselves, and many other toasts raised to his memory. Stories are told, songs are sung, but most of the tales traditionally associated with Patrick are false. They're just straight-out lies. But why let the truth spoil 1,500 years of good storytelling, eh? History has been kind to Patrick. Very kind indeed. Patrick gets a lot of publicity. He had an excellent theatrical agent in the old days, and his slick promotional material which was backed up by Roman gold, was of the very best quality. And we all know, repeat something often enough and most of the population will believe it. I mean, just look at politicians, ancient as well as modern. Yes, history has been kind to Patrick, thanks mostly to the grim determination of the Irish to hold fast to what they see as their own and to the full weight of the Church of Rome. His book helped too, an autobiographical confession written around the year 450, a wonderful record of 5th century life in the British Isles it is, to be sure. Let's have a look at some legends of St Patrick that are always brought up on St Patrick's Day. Legend number one, the Celtic Cross. Now the Christian religion was imposed lightly on the Irish, Patrick knew the language and culture and he wove his lessons over the existing fabric of traditional ritual belief. This is a Roman way of assimilation. You can see this clearly in the placement of the powerful sun symbol onto the saviour symbol to form the beautiful Celtic cross. Legend number two, the shamrock. Popular stories tell how Patrick used the shamrock as a symbol of the Trinity. Look, let's be real here. No one had the need to explain the concept of the Trinity to the Irish, whether with a shamrock or anything else. If anyone understood the essence of three being one, of a Trinity in unity, it was the early peoples of Ireland. The triple aspects of their great goddess were well understood and indeed... The shamrock was sacred to her. More likely, much more believable, is the Irish explained the concept of Trinity to Patrick. Legend number three, banishing the snakes. Oh, well, you can see in that legend the systematic attempt to eradicate the old religion from Ireland. When Patrick drove the snakes out of Ireland, he was banishing the ancient religion. After all, Patrick was an agent of the Church of Rome an organisation not known for its tolerance of other faiths. The ancient religion had an even more frightening aspect. It was based on a goddess. Curiously enough, her symbol was a serpent. With the coming of the Church of Rome, much of the essence of the goddess evolved into St. Bridget, a Christianised version of the great Brida Briashi, the fiery arrow. Well, in any case, who was Patrick? Irish he was not, nor was he even British. Patrick was a child of the wealthy patrician class, 
an elite group which enjoyed many privileges and a very comfortable lifestyle in what was once called the island of Britannia. In the north of Britannia, in Caledonia, was stationed a Roman Jacurian named Calpurnius with his wife Concessa. Calpurnius also held a religious post, one which exempted him from personal and agricultural taxes on his slave work farms. You know, you got a church, you got a religious post, well, forget about tax. You don't have to pay it. What's changed? Concessa was from a wealthy Gallic family with many distinguished members, including St Martin of Tours. You could say that this couple had it pretty good. To this privileged couple was born a son, Maven Sukat, in about 387 of the Common Era, near present-day Dumbarton in Scotland. Through misadventure, grief, all manner of tribulation and a first-class publicist, Maywin became St. Patrick. Propaganda is a mighty tool. As Christianity spread around Ireland, so did Patrick's fame. In 688, the Roman Church Federation in Armagh engaged a biographer for purposes of propaganda to establish the See of Armagh as the centre of the cult of Patrick. A skillful scribe was employed. You know, you need a good writer. Arma ended up being the sole proprietor of the National Apostle. The Book of Arma then directed all monasteries and churches in Ireland to honour the memory of the saint by a celebration to be held over three days and three nights in mid-spring. So how did he get to be the patron saint of Ireland? Well, Maywin was captured by Irish marauders when he was 16 and sold to the chief in Milku, who set him to work as a shepherd. Oh, in one manner or another, he, he escaped after six years of tending sheep on the lonely slopes of Slemish, and he walked to the coast to finally return to Britain. Once back home, his experiences brought about a revelation, and he told everyone who would listen, anyone, that an angel had commanded him to return to Ireland as a missionary. In time, he became ordained as a priest, and he packed himself into a boat back to the land where he had spent his youthful enslaved years. It's no surprise that he chose a name befitting a man of his rank, for Patrick was certainly not over-endowed with humility. His name, Patricius, means of the patrician class, the upper crust. Today, St. Patrick's Day is celebrated by people of all backgrounds, in Australia, Canada, the United States, and other locations far from Ireland, including Japan, Singapore, and Russia. Around the world, St. Patrick's Day is recognised by Irish nationals, those who claim an Irish heritage, those who purport to be Irish, those who want to be Irish, and further still by many non-Irish. It has to be the most universal of all national days. It's come to mean a lot more than homage to a religious figure. It now embodies a concept of Irishness, which apparently needs to be fueled by liberal applications of alcohol. Happy St. Patrick's Day to you. May your kilt be short enough to dance a jig in and long enough to hide your lucky charms. 
Okay, everyone, that's it for this episode of Left After Breakfast. Thanks for your company. Thanks for the ride. See you same time, same place next week. And until then, cheerio and ciao from Left After Breakfast.